Good morning. Greetings in the Master's name. It's good to be together. Worship again. Seek an interest in your prayers as we worship, continue to worship together today. We've had another one of those weeks that will be forever etched in our memories uh, because of the accident, uh, what society would call an untimely death, but we know with God, uh, His way is perfect, even though we don't fully understand it. I thought it's interesting. Some of you know this. Some of you may not. Jeremy, uh, not Jeremy. Uh, yeah, I was able to talk to Jeremy at the viewing, but we've been praying for him. He's doing quite well, it seems, with his cancer treatments are ended. He's feeling well and looking well. Uh, but Kenneth, uh, Kenneth's great-grandfather uh, was Paul Wanger. And he, Frank and Fred and Jake and Everett Nicely's mother, Anna, and Jesse Rohr's mother, Esther, and that family. That was the family he was in. He was married to Hazel Rohr, known as Hazel Wanger, widow Hazel, who passed away at the age of 103. Seventy-nine years ago, he passed away after he'd been married four years, and Hazel had Neva, which was Lewis and Joseph Hurst's mother, and uh, Ellen, which was Harvey Zerman's wife, which was uh, Kenneth's grandmother. And uh, Ellen was, uh, yeah, Ellen was eight months old when he passed away. She's 80 now, so that's how I know it was 79 years. So here we are 79 years later, and something very similar happens. I thought that was noteworthy. And uh, I'd like to read to you a poem that Kenneth had written while he was dating. It says, Help me, Lord, whatever it takes to live for you. Please help me, Lord, your will to do. Don't let me falter. I don't want to fail. I pray, help me, Lord, to flee from hell. Satan is real. He's here every day, just like you, Lord, but I want your way. Hold off the devil who's preying on men. I beg, help me, Lord, to overcome sin. Kenneth. He wrote that, gave it to his girlfriend where they were dating. So, we feel good about it. All right. I'd like to have children's meeting this morning. I'd like for the children to come up and sit on these front two benches here on, the, on this side of the church. So, would you come on up and we'll, we'll have children's meeting. Feel right on in. I tell you what, young man. Where's your brother? Here, can you fit in here beside your brother? That's good. All right. You know, one of the things I love about children, they want to be on the French bench so bad they'll sit too deep. That's all right. Well, good morning. Thanks for coming here. It's great to have you all here this morning. It's a wonderful day. The Lord has blessed us with a beautiful day, and it's good to be here and to share it together. So, are any of you all four years old? Are you four? You're not? Are you five? All right. How many of you are five years old? Can I see your hands? All right. You're five years old. All right. I have a question for you. Just the five-year-olds can answer. 
Why did Jesus come to earth? Anyone want to answer? What do you think? Anyone that's five years old want to answer that question? Anybody brave? Do you want to, you want to say why you think Jesus came to earth? That's right, to save us from our sins and to help us. That's good. The title of this morning's message is, To Whom Much Is Given, Much Is Required. And see, from five years old or younger, we know things that millions and billions of people in the world don't know. So we've been given much. We have a real blessing in knowing that. So I'm going to read from Matthew 25 this morning. It's a story there about talents. Y'all know what a talent is? What was a talent back in the Bible times when, when the Gospels were written? Any of you, you older ones can answer this one. What was a talent? It was money? That's right. How much money do you think it was? That's the story we're going after, but how much do you think those talents were worth in dollars-wise? Anybody have an idea? Anybody? Well, you see, a talent was a weight of measure, and there was actually a, a long talent and a short talent, or a heavy talent and a light talent. And so they're not exactly sure which talent Jesus was referring to. But if it was a light talent and it was a talent of something like brass or copper, something that wasn't of great value, a talent was enough to buy one ox. You know, they would plow, they'd have two ox, and they'd put a yoke between them. But a talent was enough for one ox if it was something like that. But if it was a regular talent, a long talent or a heavy talent, and it was referring to something like silver or gold, a talent was 6,000 denarius. And in our adult and youth Sunday school class, we studied about today. The, the workers went to the vineyard, and they were paid one denarius for working that day. That was enough money to live on. That was one day's wages. So a talent was 6,000 denarius if it was silver. If it was gold, it was even more than that. So 6,000 days wages, how many years' worth of wages is that? Any math whizzes up here on the front row? It's about 16.34 years. So when Jesus came, and we're going to read about these talents after a while, they were worth at least 15 years' worth of wages. So that's 15 years, and if someone had two talents, what's two times 15? What do you think? That's 30 years' worth of wages. What about if you had five talents? What's five times 15? That's right. So that man that received five talents, he had 75 years' worth of wages that he had something to do with. And that's more wages than most people earn in their lifetime. Most people don't work that long. So, yeah, I'm going to read from Matthew 25, and we're going to talk about this a little bit more. Matthew 25, and we'll jump in here at verse 14. It says, For the kingdom of heaven is a man traveling to a far country who called his own servants and delivered them his goods. Now, the kingdom of heaven 
isn't something that's way out there after we die. The kingdom of heaven starts now for people who receive Jesus as their Savior and live as Christians. We're already in the kingdom age, all right? We're living in the kingdom. And he said, this is how we live now as Christians. <clears throat> so he was traveling to a far country, and he delivered to them his goods. And I'll just tell you what I think that is. I think that's Jesus ascended back to heaven, and he entrusted us with valuable things for him while he's going, and he's going to come back. I think that's what the story's about. And to one he gave five talents, and another two, and another one, and every man according to his several ability, and straightway he took his journey. And he that received five talents went and traded the same, and made other five talents. And likewise, he that received two, and he also gained two other. But he that received one went and digged in the earth, and hid his Lord's money. And after a long time, the Lord of those servants come to reckon with them. He came back to check and see how they had done with what he had given to them. So he's coming back now, and we notice a number of things here. Uh, God gives everyone something, all right? God gives everyone something that they can do for him. Some people may be able to do more than one thing. Some person, some of you may be able to sing really well. It's just easy for you to sing, and others not so well. Some of you may be easy for you to memorize Bible verses at school, and others maybe have to work a little harder in that. But there's all kinds of different things, and some of you might just have the gift of being nice to everybody, and that's important too. But whatever it is God has, has equipped you to do, uh, we should use it for Him, to bring honor and glory to Him. So these people, and the master came back to see what happened. And he came back and he realized that, well, they'd all did something different with their talents. What do you think's in this jar? Well, I could tell you it's not 75 years' worth of wages. But it is some wages. It is some, some fractions of a talent. All right. So, we'll start with the one that had five talents. So this one man received five talents, right? And what did he do? He went out and he gained five more. So how many talents did he have then when his master came back? What do you think? That's right, he had ten. And the other one had two talents. Do y'all have these at home? Do y'all use these a lot? Two dollar bills? They're kind of rare. My mother used to get them and give them out at Christmas. So I have some $2 bills. So yeah, this one was two talents. So he went out. So how many talents did the Lord receive when he came back to that one? What do you think? That's right, four. All right. What about this one? What happened to this one? Did he, did he take this one and make it into two? Nope. It says he digged in the earth and buried his master's talent. So you can just imagine he took this jar and sealed it up, went out to the garden, dug a hole and buried it and put a rock on top of it so he knew where it was at when he found it. He buried his talent. He didn't use it. It was of no value to him or to anybody else. What happened when he came back? And after a long time, the Lord of those servants came, and he reckoned with them. And he that received five talents brought five others, saying, Lord, thou hast delivered to me five talents. Behold, I have gained besides them five more. 
And the Lord said to him, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things, and I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. He also that received the two talents came and said, Lord, thou deliverest unto me two talents. Behold, I have gained two other besides them. And the Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things, and I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of the Lord. You see what happens? When we're faithful and we serve God and we use the, the gifts that He gives us to bring honor to Him, He'll give us more gifts. He'll bless us with more and more. He'll keep taking care of us. But what if we don't? What if we got in the garden and bury our talent? What if we just don't use the blessings that God gives us to bring honor and glory to Him? He received one talent, came and said, Lord, I knew there a hard man reaping where you haven't sown and gathering where you haven't moshed. And I was afraid and went and hid that talent. Lo, here it is. You can have it back. And the Lord answered and said to him, Thou wicked and lazy servant, thou knewest that I reap where I sow not and gather where I haven't strawed or moshed. Thou oughtest therefore to put my money to the exchangers, and then in coming I would receive my own with interest. Take therefore the talent from him and give it to everyone that hath unto him that has ten talents, for unto every one that hath shall be given, and he that shall have an abundance. But from him which hath not shall be taken away even that which he has. So it's important that we use the gifts we have, and God will bless us and give us more, and don't bury it and say, well, I'm afraid. See, that, that man said, well, he, he indicated that God was not nice, and, and he was afraid of God. And God said, no. You just use what I give you, and I'll bless you and take care of you, and you'll have even more when it's all said and done. Now, why do you think Jesus used the talent, the word talent, when he told this story? Why didn't he just use the word denarius and give them each a penny? I think it's because God wants us to know that the gifts he gives us are very valuable. They have a lot of value, and he wants us to take care of them and gain more, and it'll be a blessing to all those around us. I'm going to read another verse to you, and this is in 2 Timothy 3. I thought about this. 2 Timothy 3, is one of those 316 verses in the Bible. Do you know that there's a lot of special verses in the Bible that are at the 316? spot in your books of the Bible. I'm going to start at verse 14. And Paul is writing to a young man named Timothy, and he said, But continue thou in the things that thou hast learned and been assured of, knowing whom thou hast learned them, that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. And I thought about that a lot this week. You children have wonderful opportunities. fact is, all of us here in this area do. We learn to know about Jesus and why He came to earth and God when we're very young. We learn it at church. We learn it at home. We learn it at school. We learn it at youth. We, we learn it at church services, at funerals, at wherever we go. We learn about God. So that makes us like the people who had, do you think that makes us like the person with one talent, two talents, or five? 
You think we fall into which category? The five talent, the two, or the one? We're probably about all in the five talent category because we all have so many opportunities to learn and to know about God. One more verse for you, and then I'll let you go. This is in Matthew 5. tells us how that we are to honor God with the gifts that He gives us. Matthew chapter 5, and we'll start at verse 14 again. It talks about being light. Ye are the light of the world. That's the people who who are Christians who have given their heart and life to Jesus are to be the light of the world. A city that's set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put her under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light to all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. So what do you think that would look like to let your light shine so people can see it? You have any idea what that might look like? You think it would be hard to see if you're really letting your light shine, or would that be easy to see? Can you see that? Is that hard to see? Does it hurt your eyes? Yeah. That's how we need to let our light shine. You can see this a long ways off. So let's all let our light shine. Like that. Or like that. Or like that. Or like that. Or off. You have one? Well, they come from molehill bikes, and they're a good thing to have if you ride bike on the road. So, All right. Thank you all for coming up. And let your light shine and use your talents. See ya. I invite you to turn your Bibles to Luke, the 12th chapter. Luke chapter 12. And we'll go through most of this chapter uh, fairly rapidly and pick up the truths of the Air Force. I thought, I hadn't really thought that much about it till this morning that the Sunday school lesson and this kind of all went together about using what God has given us, using it for His honor and for His glory, and not to bring honor and glory to ourselves. Jump in here at Luke chapter 12 and verse 1. In the meantime, or meanwhile, Jesus had been teaching and said, In the meantime, there were gathered together an innumerable multitude of people. That would have been a lot of people. An innumerable amount of people, multitude of people, insomuch as they strode or they trode one upon another and began, he began to say to disciples, first of all, Beware ye of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. For nothing is covered that shall not be revealed, and neither hid thou shalt not be known. Therefore, whatsoever ye have spoken in the darkness shall be heard in the light, and that which ye have spoken in the ear in the closet shall be proclaimed upon the housetops. So here we see in these first three verses, there's nothing hid from God. God is omnipresent. He's omniscient. God knows everything. There's nothing that we can do that's hidden from Him. And He knows what we're doing with what He has given to us, and He knows our attitudes about it. He knows the thought and the intent of the heart. Nothing is hidden from God. Verse 4, And I say unto you, my friends, be not afraid of them that kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. But I forewarn you, whom you shall fear, fear him which after he hath killed hath power to cast into hell. Yea, I say unto you, fear him. Our 
Are not five sparrows sold for two farthings, and one of them, and not one of them is forgotten before God? But even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are more value than many sparrows. So God has placed great value in our lives, and I was impressed. I never realized before I studied for that children's meeting that the value of a talent. That man that had five talents, uh, by today's calculation, had a million four hundred thousand dollars. And he went out and gained another million four hundred thousand dollars. And I believe, as I told your children, it was God's intent and purpose for us to realize the, the value of the gifts, of the opportunities, of the blessings that he gives to us, that he used such a large number. A, a talent was the largest measure of money that they had at that time. So the value is a great value God has placed upon our lives. Verse 8, And I say unto you, that whosoever shall confess me before men, him shall the Son of Man also confess before the angels of God. But he that denieth me before men shall be denied before the angels of God. And whosoever shall speak a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But to him that blasphemeth against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven. And when they bring you into the, mag into the synagogues, to the magistrates and the powers, take no thought of how or what thing you shall answer, or what you shall say, for the Holy Ghost shall teach you in the same hour what ye ought to say. So what I'm seeing here is that we have great value because we are created in the likeness and the image of God. Nothing else was created in all of creation in the likeness and image of God. Nothing else was created that would be a dwelling place for the Spirit of God. So God has placed great value in our lives in that we are in His likeness and in his image. And in comparing that, he said, are not five sparrows sold, and God doesn't forget one of them? To me, sparrows are quite common. They're, they're, a real, or they're a real pest, actually. And if God doesn't forget one sparrow, what about those of us who he's invested in his likeness, his image, and a dwelling place for the Spirit of God? How much more valuable are we? And he's saying, out of that, we should never deny God. Out of that reality, we should always be willing to speak a word and stand up for God and say, yes, He's my God. Jesus is my Lord. Jesus is my Savior. He's given His life for me. I'm giving everything for Him. We should understand our value and our need. And then out of that, if we live that way, He's saying, if a person denies me, that can be forgiven. If a person denies or blasphemeth against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven. I know there's a lot of wrestling with that, but I would just say the word here has an E-T-H on it. It means an ongoing, never-ending uh, type of thing. Uh, blasphemes and NIV is the idea of something that goes on and on and on. So he's saying that there will come a time when you can hold back the Spirit of God to the point that I believe it will no longer continue to, to call into your life. He said, that's not something that will be forgiven. But he goes on to say, then, when they bring you before the synagogues to the magistrates, when you are on trial for your faith, when you are questioned for your beliefs, God will be there. God will minister to our needs. God will give us what we need in that moment, in that hour, to speak and to minister to those who are questioning us in our faith. And I see a connection here between these these verses, earlier verses and the later verses. Earlier verses says, don't deny me. If you deny me, I'll be ashamed of you. But if you profess me, I will be there with you. I will give you words to speak. My power will be upon you, 
and I will carry you through for the Holy Ghost, which you have received, in contrast to blaspheming or holding back. But the Holy Ghost that you've received will be in you, and He will teach you in that moment what to say when you're questioned for your faith. And now he switches over, and he begins to talk about getting sidetracked. Getting sidetracked by things, the things of this life that keep us from investing our talents, that keeps us from doubling what God has given to us, that keep us from being that light that shines so all can see. And notice the warnings here starting in verse 13. And one of the company said unto him, Master, speak to my brother, that he divided the inheritance with me. And he said unto him, Man, who made me a judge or a divider over you? And he said unto them, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. I've underlined in this chapter, things. Verse 15 says things. Verse 20 says things. Verse 30 says things. Verse 30 says things twice. Verse 31 says things. Throughout this scripture, we keep being warned about being sidetracked from our calling because of things. Take heed and beware of getting sidetracked. And Jesus said, take heed and beware of covetousness, for a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. And he talked then the story about a certain rich man who had a, who had, whose ground brought forth plentifully, and thought within himself, saying, Where shall I, What shall I do, because I have no room to bestow my fruits? And he said, This will I do. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there will bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say unto thy soul, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said unto him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee, and then who shall those things be which thou hast provided? So is he that layeth up treasure for himself, and is not rich toward God. He's warning us not to be sidetracked by things in this life. First of all, he told him, he said, in essence, he told this man who came to him, he says, God didn't send me here to be a divider of inheritances. God sent me here for something else, a greater purpose than that. And then he said, here's a parable. And I'm going to use this parable to challenge you not to focus on things and ease and earthly security. And then he says in verse 21, So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. And I've thought about that connection between the talents we talked about with the children and being rich toward God. I believe, as I've said before, God, Jesus used the word talents there to help us understand the, the abundant riches of His grace that He has poured into our lives, that He offers us, that He gives to each one of us. And He said, if we're sidetracked by things, and we lay up treasure for here, and our focus is on material security, then we will not be rich toward God. I believe the two are exclusive, one with the other. And then he said this to his disciples, Therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life what you shall eat, neither for your body what you shall put on. For the life is more than meat, and the body more than raiment. Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap, which neither have storehouses nor barn, yet God feedeth them. How much more are you better than the fowls? And which of you by taking thought can add to his stature one cubit? And if you be then not able to do the thing which is least, 
Why take ye thought for the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They toil not, nor spin not. Yet I say unto you that Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If them God so clothed the grass which is today in the field, and tomorrow is cast into the oven, how much more will he clothe ye, O ye of little faith? And seek not what ye shall eat, or what ye shall drink, and neither be of doubtful mind. For all these things do the nations of the world seek after, and your Father knoweth that you have need of these. But rather, seek ye the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. So Jesus is saying here in verse 22, he says, Therefore, in light of all these things, and everything that, that I've already said to you about the parable of the rich young man, don't worry, don't fret. We're reminded again here, and the end of verse 29 says, Neither be a worrisome person, a doubtful mind, a person who worries. But trust, rest in God. He will meet our needs. He knows what we need. And now verse 32. Back to fact is something else that I thought of. I read recently, I, I marked in my Bible the other morning and I was reading through Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes, I believe it's chapter 4 and verse 4. Back and look. I meant to jot it down and I forgot. The writer of Ecclesiastes is talking about all the vanity and all the vain things, and he had tried wealth, and he had tried pleasure, and he had tried agriculture, and he'd tried all these different things to find satisfaction. And he's obviously coming to the end of his life. I don't know if he'd begin to already begin to turn away from the Lord or not, but Solomon's writing, and he's writing about the vanity of life. And I marked these verses. I thought it was interesting. Verse 4 of chapter 4 of Ecclesiastes says this, And I saw all the labor and all the achievement spring from man's envy of his neighbor. All the things he achieved and all the labor he did that sprang out of competition with his neighbor. I'd never seen that before. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. How often do we have something we're really happy with until our friend gets something a little nicer? And suddenly it just isn't, it just isn't as satisfying as it was. You ever faced that? Maybe you go to somebody else's place and you come home and think, oh, man, it'd be nice to have what they had. Solomon says, I saw all the labor and all the achievement that springs from man's envy's neighbor, and this too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. And I thought that fit well with this passage. God says, I'm meeting your needs. Toil, yes. Labor, work to provide. I will meet your needs. And now, the capstone, the beautiful part here in verse 32, back in Luke 12, is this. It says, Fear not, little flock, for it's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Let's just imagine a bit this verse and what it means from God's perspective. Jesus is saying, you little flock of believers here, don't be afraid. Don't have anxiety. Rest in me because it is my heavenly Father's wonderful pleasure to bestow upon you the kingdom. Is that exciting? God wants to bless us with his kingdom in our hearts, in our lives, on this earth, in heaven after we pass away. So he said in light of that, don't be afraid to sell and give. 
alms. Provide yourselves that which doesn't wax old, that doesn't wear out, bags which wax not old, treasure in the heavens that faileth not, where no thief approaches nor moth corrupteth. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. You think that's true? Or is that an allegory? Where we have treasure, that's where our heart is. You think that's true? Yeah, of course it is. The thing we labor the most for, the thing we exert the most energy for, the thing that we will sacrifice other things for, is where our heart is. God created us. He knows that. We can't, we can't get away from that. So I've been thinking about where is my heart? What am I doing with the one or talent and a half that I've been given? How am I investing it? Am I gaining more? What am I doing with it? What God has given me. He says, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And that follows the verse here about giving to help others. You see, if our treasure is in heaven, then our ultimate goal will be to influence as many people to into the kingdom of Jesus Christ as we possibly can with whatever we have, whether it's natural abilities, material uh, blessings, whatever, that it's all to bring people in to the kingdom of Jesus Christ, that kingdom that God just delights to bestow upon us and to give to us. Now, we could have another therefore at verse 35, but we don't. But I'm going to put it there. Therefore, let your loins be girded about and your lights burning. What is he saying? The idea was they wore these loose, floppy robes, and they had a way of tying them up in, in a belt and girding themselves about so they could respond and move quickly and walk or run or whatever and not be encumbered by their flowing robes. He says, always be prepared for action. Always be ready to serve. Always be ready to take the talent, whatever it is in your life, and use it to build the kingdom and keep your lights on. Let your light so shine before men they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. So always be prepared, always be ready, and always keep your light burning. Hide it under a bushel, no. I'm going to let it shine. I guess I was first introduced to that song when I went to Bethany at Bible school, and they'd say, let it shine on Briary Branch. So that was their version of it. But let it shine wherever you're at. Don't put it under a bushel. Don't hide it. Speak a word for the Lord. Don't be ashamed, whatever situation you're in. Don't be ashamed to speak a word for the Lord. I was impressed. This past week I stopped in at uh, Comcast store in Harrisonburg, and the manager of the store up there, every time, and they were busy as bees, people were coming and going, and uh, he told everybody the same thing when they left. He said, have a blessed day. So I get an opportunity, I want to ask him sometime about his faith. So he was, in a small way, was letting his light shine to everybody he met that day. Have a blessed day, he tell everybody. So are we letting our light shine? And ye yourselves 
Be like men unto men that wait for their Lord when he returneth from the wedding, and when he cometh and knocketh, they may open to him immediately. What's that referring to? The parable of the, of the wise and foolish virgins, being ready whenever he comes. Blessed are those servants whom the Lord, when he cometh, shall find watching. Verily I say unto you, he shall gird himself and make them set down to meat, and shall come forth and serve them. He shall come the second or the third watch, and find them so blessed are those servants. And this know, if the good man of the house had known what hour the thief would have came, he would have watched and would not have suffered his house to be broken through. Be ye therefore ready also, for the Son of Man cometh an hour when ye think not. Then Peter said unto him, Lord, speakest thou this parable unto us, or even to all? And the Lord said, Who do it, whom these lords shall make ruler over all his household, and give them their portions of meat in due season? And we're back again to the parable of the talents, but we're in a different passage. He's referring back to that concept. Blessed is that servant whom the Lord, when he cometh, shall find so doing. Of a truth I say unto you, you will make him ruler over all that he hath. But if that servant say in his heart, My Lord delayeth in his coming, shall begin to beat the men servants and the maid servants, and eat and drink and to be drunken. The Lord of that servant will come in a day when he looketh not for him, and an hour when he is not aware. He will cut him in sunder and will appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. You know, there's a verse that I did not share at the children's meeting on purpose because it was a children's meeting, but I'm going to refer to it now. What does the Scripture say that God was going to do to that man who buried his talent? He took it away from him and gave it to the man that had ten, right? What else is he going to do? He said he's going to cast that unprofitable servant into outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And I've meditated deep on that. Is God telling us that He gives us opportunity and we spurn those opportunities? There's going to be eternal consequences for that. That's the way it looks to me in Scripture. If we're not using what God has given us, what is God's response to that? And the Lord of that servant will come in a day when he looketh not for him an hour when he is not aware and will cut him asunder and will appoint him a portion with the unbelievers. The same concept here in this passage. If that servant which knew his Lord's will and prepared himself not, neither did according to his will, will be beaten with many stripes. But he that knew not and did commit things worthy of stripes shall be beaten with few stripes, for whomsoever much is given of him be much required. And to whom men have committed much of him will they ask the more. And there's the text verse for, th for this morning's message and children's meeting and everything. He says, to whom much is given, of him much is required. I wonder if there's ever been a population of people in any era of time since the beginning who has more opportunity and more knowledge of what we ought to do than our generation. There's millions of believers around the world who would give anything for a Bible. How many do you have at home? A whole shelf, probably, of Bibles. There are many people who have never been taught right from wrong. Our children are taught right from wrong from birth. There's many people who do not have the privilege of, of having an interpretation of the New Testament that says the kingdom is here now. We're to live it out now. There's many people in Christian churches across our nation, across the world, who are taught that, no, the Sermon on the Mount and all that, that's for the millennial, and, and the separation of church and state hasn't happened, and, and all of this stuff. We've had people who've gone before us who have given their lives 
to maintain those biblical truths and to transmit it to future generations. Is there anyone in the world who's more accountable than we are before God? He says, always be prepared. Always be ready. Always follow Him. See, there's sins of omission and there's sins of commission. Sins of commission are things that I do that I know I ought not to do, and I go against the Spirit of God and I sin. And there's sins of omission where the Spirit leads me and points me to do something, and I choose not to obey the leading of the Spirit. We all sin and come short of the glory of God. And probably for most of us, sins of omission outnumber sins of commission because of everything we've looked at here today, how much we have, how blessed we are, and everything that we have uh, at our disposal to help us know and understand what it means to walk with God. He said, the one who knew his Lord's will and did not do it will be beaten with many stripes. <clears throat> Another study that I've done recently, it's been a challenge to me, and I won't turn there for sake of time, but in Genesis 25, you know the story, Jacob and Esau, Jacob had fixed some, some lentils, some soup, some pottage, whatever you want to call it. Esau came in, and he was famished. And he said, give me some of your soup. And Jacob, the supplanter, said, uh, sell me your birthright. Exchange me your birthright for the soup, and we got a deal. And Esau said, well, I'm about ready to die of hunger anyway. What good's it going to do me? And he traded his birthright for a bowl of soup. And then we come to Hebrews 12, and it says, when he would have received a blessing, he had already lost it. That, re that refers to the, when he came into his father for the blessing after Jacob had came in and deceived uh, Israel to give the blessing to the, to the wrong man, or not uh, Isaac, deceived Isaac to give the blessing to the wrong man. It said he, he would have received a blessing, but he could not, even though he sought it with tears because he despised his birthright. And I've been studying that word despised. And we think of the word despised to mean loathe, to hate something with intense hatred. But as I've studied it, I found out there's another meaning for the word despise. And it means to count, to count whatever is in focus as something that is negligible, something that may have value, may not in our mind. And I believe that is the definition that, de that applies to the fact that Esau despised his birthright. He's, he viewed it as something, take it or leave it. It's not a big deal. And God was displeased that he despised his birthright. And I'm thinking about all that we've been blessed with in our lives. And isn't coming into the kingdom actually a birthright? Jesus rose as the firstborn, and we are then firstborns after him. What are we doing with our birthright? Are we considering it something that is, as Webster says, negligible? Uh, something that's kind of dispensable? I'm uh, struggling for the right word right now. But, yeah, it's, it's just something of, yeah, it has some value, but, you know, I'll be fine. Take it or leave it. Do we see that happening around us? Do we see that happening in our, in our circles, in our, even close home to us? 
Do we consider the value of what has been given to us? I'm going to do something a little different if it works here to close this morning. I recently have listened to more than once the history of Ebenezer Mennonite Church. And there was a pastor down there that served there for 29 years. And his name was Otis Sneed. And I wish I had his testimony written. I don't. I only have it recorded. But I would like for us to listen to Otis Sneed's testimony this morning, if I can make it work, and look at what he was willing to give in order to simply enjoy the blessings that we're handed to in our heritage. We think, well, anybody could become an Anabaptist. Anybody could become a Mennonite. This was in the 40s, 50s, somewhere back in there. It wasn't that long ago. And just listen to what he had to go through in an attempt to enjoy the blessings that we have in our lives. Like I said, I wish I had this to read, but I don't. So we're dropping in where that a number of people at the church had moved away. They was wanting more fellowship. And the people who stayed, a few people who stayed at Ebenezer decided they was going to go out and start having prayer meetings and Bible studies and invite everybody from the community in. And Otis Sneed was a man from the community. So he came, and this is his testimony. You want me to use this microphone? community prayer meetings held in homes. These meetings were well attended and, gr attended and great interest was shown. Many were led to look deeper into the scriptures and some were added to the church. One of the most outstanding additions to the church during this period was Otis Sneed, who came from a missionary Baptist background. His convictions grew as he studied in the community prayer meetings Despite much opposition from his wife, his friends, extended family, he joined the Mennonite Church about 1931. So Otis Sneed was the minister here for years, and my family moved here in 1965 to uh, my dad to relieve him of his responsibility. So a lot of this history is very accurate and documented, but let me read Otis Sneed's testimony. Uh, he wrote this himself. It's entitled, Why I Became a Mennonite. It was written in, or published in Sword and Trumpet, first quarter of 1950. By reasons of request, yet reluctantly, I give testimony of my experience into changing my fellowship from the Missionary Baptist to the Mennonite Church. My only purpose here is to help fellow travelers into a closer fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And I trust it will all be to the glory of God. I wish to cast no undue reflection on the Missionary Baptist Church, nor upon those who opposed me while I was counting the cost. At the age of 10, I confessed Christ as my personal Savior, united with the Missionary Baptist Church, and enjoyed fellowship with that group for nearly 20 years. I feel that I should say those years I lived up to the light that I had received. But, praise the Lord, 
In his abundant mercy and grace, through contact with the Little Mennonite Group prayer meeting, which was conducted in homes in the community, he revealed, he, God, revealed more light to me. Please, dear friend, do not interpret this as a second work of grace. It was instead a growth in grace in the knowledge of the Son of God. The last three or four years I was with the above mentioned church were years of conviction and remorse. By several passages of scripture, God through the presence and power of the Holy Spirit brought conviction upon me. This was not because I had backslidden or fallen from grace, but rather I had received more light. As more light <coughs> dawned upon me, I became more and more miserable until I became willing to walk in this newfound light. Jesus said, if any man will do his will, he will know the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. I received the conviction that in order to maintain my faith and the salvation I received through faith in the atoning merits of the shed blood on Calvary, I must be willing to do the Lord's will. I would think thief on the cross who was ushered into paradise without even being baptized. But then I knew he did not have opportunity to show his willingness to obey the Lord. I saw here marvelous grace and also a demonstration of Jesus' power to save. This is the Lord's doings and it's marvelous in our eyes. I would reason since the thief on the cross was saved, why then was it necessary for me to obey the gospel and keep the ordinances of the Lord's house? But I knew the Christian church is now established Jesus gave her after the cross a great commission which incorporated the command to teach observance of all his. As all that was involved dawned upon me, I began to feel as though the wrath of God was upon me. For I was holding the truth in disobedience, Romans 1.18. I found I was guilty of the sin of omission. I remembered that Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments, John 14, 55. Why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things I say? Luke 6, 46. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven, Seven twenty one. The time came for action. But what must I do? I was anything but happy. I remember Jesus said, if you know these things, happier are ye if you do them. I decided to take Jesus at his word because I wanted to have part up with him. The question was, what steps can I take? I felt I could not convert the whole Baptist convention to obedience of, to the full gospel. I spoke to my own pastor. He along with others contended that most of the ordinances I called attention to belong to the customs of another age. They said that the teachings of Jesus in the Sermon on to the millennial time. My opposer said to me, we have educated leaders in our church. Certainly if we obey these people, they will know what to do. I replied, Jesus said to his father, I thank thee, Father, that thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and has revealed them unto babes. Also, 
The world by wisdom knew not God, and the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. I suppose they put me in a class of those who are mentally deranged. <clears throat> so what could I do but change my fellowship and come out from them and find fellowship with a group that espouses the full gospel? This I did. But oh, the cost of discipleship. My wife said, if you join the Mennonites, I will leave you. Dear reader, do not think that she did not mean it. But God took care of that. Actually, I went through with that ordeal in my mind. But like Joseph, I can now see the hand of God in it all. It was God's way thus to test my willingness to go with him all the way. By the grace of God, I came to the place and I'm still there if I know my heart. If you, dear friend, are not happy, come to the foot of the cross, leave self and selfish ambitions there. My mother also objected and pled earnestly in tears. Please don't. It seems as though I can <coughs> hear her now after 21 years. She insisted that my best friends would turn me down and that many other things would happen. Others said, you are violating the fifth commandment. You should honor your father and your mother. Again, the, request, the question returned. What shall I say or do? I remembered God's promise. He that honoreth me, I will honor. And also, we ought to obey God rather than men. Who was I that I should withstand God? So I decided the best way to honor my mother was to wholeheartedly obey my Lord who gave his life for me. My father died when I was nine years old. And some of my friends asked, do you think your father was saved? They knew that I believed he was. Then they asked, why do you think you must keep any more ordinances than he did? To them I said, that seems easy for me. He said, whomsoever is given much, much is required, Luke 12, 48. Now that God has revealed his will to me more completely, I am under more obligation to love and obedience to him. For to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin, James 4, 7. I testify, dear readers, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. It was that to me. It was my weapon to meet the gainsayers, to give me courage to press on. Jesus became the author of eternal salvation to all that obey him. I was especially supported by Mark 10, 28 to 30. Finally, my wife replied this way. If you're right, and the ordinances the Mennonite church teaches are right, the Lord will have to show me, not man. You and your preachers need not try. God met the challenge. She studied her Bible and prayed much. Six long years passed before she actually united with our church. She told me not long after that the Lord showed her that he meant what he said in his word, and conviction seized her so strongly that she knew she must submit to the Lord wholeheartedly. 
in order in wholehearted obedience remain saved. While on a long trip, she became afraid that she might meet death by accident while she was in her rebellious state. And she promised the Lord that if he would give her a safe trip home, she would unite with the Mennonite church and carry out her convictions fully. She came at her first opportunity and has been faithful and happy ever since. Praise the Lord. Since my wife and I did not know where else to go when we were long convicted by the word and the Holy Spirit, our plea to the Mennonite church is this. <clears throat> this is a quote. Please try to remain in doctrine and practice in the full gospel, that precious possession that came to us through the blood and tears of earlier generations of the faithful in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that was published in 1950. All right. So he served as pastor then. He was actually ordained, I think, a little bit before his wife came over. And he then served as pastor alone for some 20 years there at Ebenezer. And I thought that money, it's not to put down the missionary Baptists or lift anybody up. But what that man was willing to suffer after he, after he got a deeper understanding of the scriptures and understood that he was living in the sin of omission for not following all the doctrines that he had then learned in the Bible. So we'll conclude this morning by challenging us with the challenge he left. Let's be faithful so that we can also be a place where when God brings conviction into people's lives to walk with him, they can join and we can fellowship with them and let's be faithful and all that we've been given, to whom much is given, much is required. I don't think there's anyone ever lived before us who has been given the opportunity that we have to understand the Word of God and to be faithful to it. Can we have a song? <clears throat>